Okay, open your Bibles this morning. We're in the Minor Prophets, Obadiah. So to find the Minor Prophets, you just go to the end of your Old Testament, and then you just start looking around. But this is the fourth book, so he starts with Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then Obadiah. It's always fun in Bible studies to tell somebody, hey, turn to the book of uh, Nahum, and they have to uh, look around for a while. It's always funny if it's not you, right? If it's you, then it's not so funny. Zechariah, that's always a fun one. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we come this morning to learn from your word. We come to just to see what you have to tell us. This is a survey, Lord, and so we're just hitting the high points, but we know that each of us has something that might stand out this morning in this study, something that we haven't learned before, something that you will impress upon us. I just pray, Lord, that we would learn the Bible better. That when we are asked to turn to a book or we're just looking for a verse and these minor prophets, we are familiar with where that book is at and the theme of that book and the context of that book. Help us, Lord, to know the word so much that it it just comes out of us. And when we least expect it, we have recalled and remembered a verse that encourages us, that teaches us about you. So I pray that you would do that for us on behalf of Christ our Lord. Amen. Obadiah, another interesting name. We're talking about the Minor Prophets. We're talking about little short books. That's why they're called minor. But they're not minor in importance. There's no unimportant book in the Bible. Unimportant books weren't included in the Bible. God didn't inspire them. And so no one tried to add them to Scripture. They are only minor because they're smaller. And they're small enough to fit on one scroll, long scroll. So they were included and what's called the Book of Twelve. But this doesn't mean they come all at the end of the Old Testament period. They are scattered throughout. But generally, the older ones come first. And so we looked at some of those last week. With the first three, now we're covering three more, starting with Obadiah. So the name Obadiah means servant of the Lord. These prophets often have interesting names. Servant of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the name meant something. The name... Even though the parents didn't know what the child would grow up to be, oftentimes we find that the Lord had providentially worked the name in with who that person would become and what they would do. This is one of the older ones, 9th, 8th century. So just like Hosea, just like Joel, this happens pretty early. He's writing to the southern kingdom. Obadiah is writing to them, but it's not really all about them. This is what's interesting is that the prophets sometimes wrote about other nations. So Obadiah is writing about Edom's judgment. Edom is not Judah. They're not Jewish. They're not part of God's people. But they had mocked Judah. Or they will. We'll just say at this point, they will mock Judah. They will laugh at Judah's destruction. And so God is going to judge them. Why does God write this to Judah and not to Edom? Well, God doesn't write books to people that aren't his. So it's, it's to Judah to encourage them that nobody's going to go unpunished. Everyone will be judged. But through that, maybe an Edomite would come upon this. Maybe they would end up traveling through Judah and hear about this. It could be evangelistic, but that's not its primary intent. The, the primary purpose is that the judgment of Yahweh would fall upon Edom because of her lack of brotherly kindness. But Israel would be restored. So there is a message to Israel at the end of the book. 
It's only one chapter, by the way, so you can read it pretty quick. Two pages in my Bible. It's there so that Israel would realize that the nations will not escape judgment. They will be judged. And Israel will be restored, even though the nation is going to suffer, even though the southern kingdom, which will last the longest, will eventually be taken into exile and destroyed. They will be restored someday. So two sections, really, in this book. The first section is on Edom. You can see that break there around verse 18. My Bible breaks it between 14 and 15, says the day of the Lord and the future. But I think the context really changes and focuses more on Israel there in verse 18, where it says, then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. So Edom comes from, where does Edom come from? It comes from Esau. So you can see that in verse 18. There's Jacob and then there's Esau. But the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them. So you had these two brothers. What happened with Esau? Who remembers that story in the Old Testament? Esau was the oldest. He had the birthright. What did he do? He basically sold it for a a hot cup of stew. And sometimes people read that and they think, oh man, that's just really sad that God would punish him for a cup, you know, what a little mistake. No, it's saying that he valued his inheritance so little that he was willing to trade it for a meal. It's not saying he just slipped up and he was so hungry. He did anything to get food because he was starving. No, it was so, it meant nothing to him. It was so little that he could just trade it for a meal. And of course, God loved Jacob, even though Jacob was a rascal. From Jacob, we get the nation Israel. So Edom is, we'll just say they're distant cousins to the Jewish people. And yet they were celebrating, or they're going to celebrate after the judgment comes upon this nation of Israel. So let's just start in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. So Edom is so happy, and they're, they're joining with forces against God's people. They're joining with the forces against Judah. And God says, I'll make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. Edom lived on a mountainside, and so they thought they were protected. In the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? This is the things they were saying. We're protected here. We can't be conquered. Though you build high like the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in him. So, All of this is talking about how they will be destroyed. God will use providential means. He's not going to send fire and brimstone. This is not Sodom and Gomorrah. But he will use providential means. He will use others. Other people will deceive them. Other nations will attack them. They will be destroyed. But a day is coming when God is going to restore Israel. So picking back up in verse 19, Then those of the Negev, that's the desert south of Israel, will possess the mountain of Esau. 
So the people of the desert who really don't have a home, who are living in caves and in tents, they're going to have a home because the nation of Edom will be gone. And they'll move up to the mountain homes. And those are the Shephelah, the rocky hillside, uh, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. And the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion, the judge of the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So we're looking far into the future here. We're looking at when God restores the nation Israel, when they believe, and when the kingdom is upon the earth. That's why it says right before verse 15, the subheading is the day of the Lord and the future. So Christ is coming back. He's going to ascend the mountain of the Lord. His kingdom will reign and Edom will be gone. Edom will be no more. Even today, it's going to be hard for you to find an Edomite. There's some people who live in that region that are probably descendants of Edom, but you would have a hard time finding an Edomite and someone who connects with that heritage. Maybe you guys know an Edomite. I know lots of Jews, but I don't know any Edomite. So a real short book broken down into two sections. What kind of commentaries? Well, I've already mentioned Feinberg. Feinberg always has a section on the minor prophets that's worth looking at. Very simple. If you don't have a lot of time, he's going to cover this in a few pages. Also, Irv Busnitz, who I mentioned last week with the book of Joel, his commentary includes Obadiah. So it's always nice to get a commentary that includes two books of the Bible. Saves you money. And this is not real technical. It's not a lot of Hebrew. Even though he is a Hebrew scholar from the Master's Seminary, one of Frank's professors. That was kind of hard in Hebrew, I heard. He was my dean of academics there. And he has a good book on Joel and Obadiah. So we only have one interpretive. No, we have two, sorry. The first interpretive issue is the date of Edom's actions. Is this in 848? So Second Chronicles, Frank, look up Second Chronicles 21, 8 through 20. And Ernest, since you already had it there, Second Chronicles 28, 16 through 18. Those are our two mentions with the dates listed here beside them. And then we have the big date of 586 B.C. That's when the city is going to be completely destroyed. That's when the city is going to be completely overrun. Frank, you got the first one? So that's a possibility, even though this is probably a little too early for Obadiah and when he lived and when he wrote. And there's not really a destruction of Judah. It just says some groups of people came against Judah, invaded it, carried away all the possessions found in the king's house. So there was an attack made. They got some things. But most of the judgment here is on the king himself of Judah and not Edom. All right, the next one's a little shorter, 28, 16. So, for again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah. So they came and attacked in 735 to 715. They were making some attacks. That's a possibility. It's certainly after Obadiah. But I'm going to go, and I didn't create a different slide to tell you which one I'd go with. But all, all of these are possibilities. I think 586 is what Obadiah probably had in mind. Uh, especially since he's looking way into the future and talking about the day of the Lord, which even in our timeline hasn't happened yet. So 586 is when the city is destroyed, and it's destroyed by the Babylonians. Not long after that, Edom is destroyed as well, 
And I think the day of the Lord is saying, by the time Christ comes back, Edom is going to be a wasteland. There's no one going to be there. And the people from the plains will go up and inhabit that area. So I'm going with C. If you disagree, that's fine. You can prove your case and write a long paper. Maybe Frank will grade you on it. But I'm going to go with 586 because that's the big event for Judah. Okay, second issue, and it's really a similarity that we see between Obadiah, the first nine verses, and what Jeremiah says in the book of Jeremiah. So go back with me to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah also prophesies. Now, this is interesting because when does Jeremiah write? The year around the time that Judah is destroyed, when Jerusalem is destroyed. Jeremiah, in his book, he warns of the coming destruction. And then he sees it happen and writes about it. And then the Lamentations is looking back, lamenting over the destruction. So if you turn to Jeremiah 49, 7, it's prophecy against Edom. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Taman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dadan. For I will bring the disaster of Esau upon him. At the time I will punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, they would destroy only until they had enough. But I have stripped Esau bare. I have covered his hiding places. And so he goes on all the way to verse 22, talking about what God's going to do to Edom. Because they, along with these others, like Ammon and the others mentioned in this section here, Damascus in verse 23 and 28, Syria and Kedar and Elam in verse 34. These are areas that join with Babylon. These are areas that we could just say they had an alliance with the Babylonians. And so they helped and they cheered on and they celebrated because their rival had been conquered. And so God's going to judge them. So again, I think Jeremiah lines up with Obadiah. And I think that points us back to 586 because that's when Jeremiah is writing or around that time. So this always, you know, who stole from who or who stole from whom, if I use correct grammar. Jeremiah, did he use Obadiah? Did Obadiah use Jeremiah? And did Obadiah and Jeremiah use some other source that we don't have? Well, I'm just going to go with a simple answer here. Obadiah writes when? Ninth and eighth century, right? Uh, Jeremiah writes 586. So, sixth century BC. So, we have about two to three hundred years. It's hard to believe that Obadiah used Jeremiah since the book hadn't been written yet when Obadiah lived. So, I'm canceling out B. Since we don't have any evidence of a, a common source, it would have degraded anyway and it wasn't inspired, let's say. I'm just going to go with A. Jeremiah looked back and he used some of the language in Obadiah. That happens a lot in the Bible. God inspires these writers to connect to other books of the Bible. So the reason it's similar is because God had put a prophecy in Jeremiah's mouth to prophesy. And he is using the same language, which to a Jew would, would connect back and say, yeah, that's what Obadiah said. That makes sense. We ought to fear this God who knew hundreds of years beforehand that this was going to happen, that we were going to be conquered, that Edom was going to join with the conquerors, and that they would eventually be punished. Which, by the way, how good is God's mercy? Ninth, 8th century BC, 300 years before the uh, Judah's going to be destroyed, before Jerusalem's going to be attacked. You're reading the prophet Obadiah in, in synagogue. You're hearing it read 
And you think, when is our country going to be taken, destroyed? What's all this about? God is warning them hundreds of years in advance. Did they see it coming? They did. They didn't want to see it. And Jeremiah is all about reminding them, look, this is what the prophet said. I'm the prophet. I'm saying this. And they still didn't listen. Which means you can have the whole Bible telling you to do something and still not listen. We see that a lot, don't we? We see that with unbelievers. Sometimes even believers try to be stubborn for a time. Okay, Jonah. Jonah. I preached a sermon series on Jonah a while back. What was that? Over a year now? And it was, it was fun. Jonah's name means dove. People think, well, he's very gentle. If you read the book of Jonah, he's not being very gentle. Doves were seen as stupid. It's possibly that this name's indicating, you know, how stubborn and stupid he's acting. The doves were dumb, and Jonah acts very dumb in this book. It's interesting that he writes us about himself, so I think that's proof of his eventual conversion, or, or let's just say, not conversion, but his turning. We'll, we'll put it that way. His turning back to the Lord because he was running from God, and he does eventually turn back, but it's not recorded in the book. When did he write 8th century B.C.? He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. So some of these minor prophets are going to be mentioned in other books, historical books. We would expect that because these are real men. They lived in history and, and prophesied to these nations. So he's prophesying to the northern kingdom before it's disappearing, before it gets attacked and is taken away. And so in 2 Kings 14.25, it mentions Jonah. I'll just read it to you here. He restored, this is talking about Amaziah, the, the son of Joash, king of Judah. So the southern kingdom is being referenced here. And it says in verse 23 that he became, yeah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So in the kings, remember, it's back and forth, north and south, north and south. They're chronicling the kings. So Amaziah is the king in the south, and then Jeroboam is the king in the north, the king in Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, his ancestor, the son of Nebat, uh, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So this is Jonah and our book, Jonah, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. So whatever 2 Kings is talking about, that's a prophecy that we don't have in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is about Jonah's trip to Nineveh, Jonah's trip to the Assyrians. Jonah is going to the Gentiles and God is sending them there. In 2 Kings, it's referencing that God prophesied through Jonah that the northern kingdom would restore its border. They would get back some cities that had been taken. And we see there that Jonah is a true prophet. Some people don't think John is a true prophet because of the way he acts, but he is. He's just a really stubborn, dumb, sinful prophet, like many of us sometimes are when we run from God. What's the theme of the book? This is kind of debated. I think it is best said as mercy on repentant Gentiles. And there is some about Jonah himself, so we can say the wrong way prophet. There's some hope for us as we stray because we see what God is doing with Jonah. He's very merciful. Why is this in our Bibles? While Israel was an ineffective servant, the sovereign Yahweh, God, brought salvation to repentant Gentiles. So don't think that you're so special, Israel, that only God can, can deal with you. He can find people anywhere. Remember what Jesus said? 
You know, you think that you're sons of Abraham and therefore you'll automatically get salvation? God can raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. God can go save Gentiles. And Jesus even talks about Jonah, doesn't he? He even uses that against the Pharisees and says, look, you don't even believe, but the Gentiles believe when Jonah went to preach. And so your sign that I'll give you is going to be just like the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Or in Jesus' case, the belly of the earth. We could divide it up in half. God's mercy upon Jonah. So the first two chapters is all about Jonah just getting there. Remember, he doesn't want to go. He runs away from God. Don't run from God. You're going to end up in the belly of a fish. Well, first you're going to end up getting seasick, then thrown overboard, then dying almost in the bottom of the ocean, then getting swallowed by a whale, and then getting barfed up with all that stomach acid on the shore. So what happens if you run from God? He's going to really discipline you. He's going to discipline you as much as it takes to get you back. And in this case, Jonah was ready to die rather than go and proclaim the truth to the Gentiles because God is compassionate, God is merciful, and he knew God would save them, and he doesn't want any of that. So let's look at this in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So now we know it's the same guy mentioned in 2 Kings. Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship. He went down into the ship. He goes down into the sea. He just goes down, down, down. It's a continual spiral for Jonah all the way through. Even the pagan sailors on the ship end up getting saved and calling out to the Lord. And so Jonah's trying not to to have any Gentiles saved. And before he even gets to Nineveh, there's already some Gentiles being saved. Chapter 2 is his prayer to God from the stomach of the fish. I said whale. We don't know if it's a a whale or some kind of large fish, some kind of creature that is not in the ocean today. But he cries out to God. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So you can imagine Jonah's probably almost out of oxygen. And he knows he's dying. And this fish swallows him up. And it's not so much a punishment as it is a rescue. It's a rescue from the depths of the sea. And so we see in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So this teaches Jonah that salvation comes from the Lord, God, Yahweh. And verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. So he's praying to God. He's not praying to God out of repentance, I don't think. I think Jonah's just wanting help. He just wants to get out of the belly of the fish. Because by the end of the book, he still doesn't seem to be too repentant. But he understands, verse 9, that salvation is from the Lord. Whether it's physical deliverance or eternal salvation, whatever it is, whatever kind of deliverance, it always comes from the Lord. He is behind it all. He can command a fish, and it does say in this book that he commands the fish. God does. God is sovereign over everything, even nature. He commands the wind and the waves to get choppy and cause the storm. He commands the fish to swallow up Jonah. 3 and 4 is all about Nineveh. Once Jonah arrives, verse 2 of chapter 3, God says again, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, here's his sermon, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. Short sermon. He just kept repeating that all around the city. took him three days to go around the city. What happened? Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth. They showed signs of repentance. The king even got into it. The whole city repents. Chapter 4. Jonah's very upset. Jonah's very upset. He goes out. And he just sits down. And he was greatly displeased, it says. He became angry, angry at God. And uh, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You said you were going to destroy them, but I knew if I went there and preached the truth and told them to repent, they would listen because you're so compassionate. You changed their hearts. I knew that was going to happen. and I didn't want to do it. And so therefore, he says, take my life for death is better to me than life. He would rather die than see these people saved. And there's some reasons behind that. He's not just a racist. They would have been of similar skin color. They would have been of Middle Eastern descent here. The issue is, I think Jonah knows that Assyria is going to be the ones that come and attack and take away and destroy the northern kingdom. I think he's read other uh, prophets that talk about this. I think he understands what's going to happen. Not to mention Assyria is the world power. They've already taken many of the Jewish people and attacked and killed them. And so he knows what's coming. He doesn't want to help them. But God is compassionate. God saves. And God says, don't I have a reason to be compassionate on all these people and even the animals in the city? Because everybody was going to be destroyed. God has a right. It's his. The people are his. The city is his. The animals are his. So the last verse, this is where we leave off of Jonah. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? They don't even know who God is. They're like little children who don't know their right from their left. They, they don't even know who God is. Does God not have a right to have compassion by sending a prophet to preach to them? That's it. We leave off with the question. You don't see Jonah's response. You don't see Jonah repenting. What happened to Jonah? We don't know. What happened to Jonah? I think he repented and he wrote this book to show his repentance. He wrote this book to show how foolish he is. He's the only one who could have known all of this stuff. He's the only one who could have known what God said to him. The fact that he was in the belly of a fish for three days. He wrote this to show his repentance. And how we should listen to the Lord. And how we should proclaim God's truth to whoever God tells us to. So if we were to break it down, I like this. I found this little uh, breakdown. Chapter 1, I won't go. Chapter 2, I will go. Chapter 3, I'm here. Chapter 4, I shouldn't have come. Shouldn't have come. And so Jonah's an example of a believer who doesn't want to do what God says. And they just keep on not wanting to do what God says. But eventually, God just pushes them through that door that they won't go through. And they realize, okay, this is great, but I knew this would happen. And then you're mad that God has actually blessed your ministry or blessed your business or blessed whatever. And you start complaining. 
Look what happened, God. You blessed my business. Now I have all these problems. I got all these employees. What do I do with all this money? My life's a mess because I misused my money, went into debt. It's that kind of attitude that we see with Jonah. Key passages, we already looked at 2.8. Salvation is from the Lord. So Jonah was a Calvinist. You're supposed to laugh. Yeah, he's like 2,500 years before Calvin. Jonah understood the sovereignty of God. And 4.2, we looked at that, God's grace and compassion. By the way, that verse, what's said in that verse, comes up multiple times in the Old Testament. God is compassionate. He's full of loving kindness. He's slow to anger. We see that all the way from the writings of Moses in the beginning of the Bible uh, through the minor prophets here. Commentaries, Feinberg's always going to be on the list. Remember, he's, he's the guy that you get 12 commentaries in one right here in this little book. Little short few pages on each minor prophet. If you want to go a little more depth, and this does have some, some Hebrew letters in it, so if that scares you, but if you're, if you're teaching on this book or you want to go in depth, a commentary on the book of the 12 by Michael B. Shepherd. He also includes all the 12, but I, I've used his when I preached through Jonah and found it very helpful. Kriegel exegetical. Most of the Hebrew stuff you could skip if you didn't know it, and it's probably going to be in the footnotes, but uh, Shepherd is very helpful and seeing some things that sometimes we don't see as modern American English readers. All right, the big interpretive issue. Was it historical? What's the genre here? Are we talking history? Is this real? Or is this sort of a, a story that's um, made up to teach us a lesson? Didactic means teaching. So yeah, it occurred, but uh, some things were embellished to make a point. Like when you're telling your kids a story, there's some truth to it, but then there's also some embellishment, some exaggeration. Or is it just really an allegory or a parable? It's completely made up, completely made up to show us uh, some things about God and who he is. Well, a lot of people like option three because there's a big fish and we know, you know, there's no fish that swallow people today, is there? Well, there are some pretty big fish out there, aren't they? There's a lot. They could eat people, right? And so could God cause a fish that might eat a person to not eat them and just kind of store them in the uh, mouth cavity for a while where there's a big air pocket? Sure, that's possible. Not to mention, we don't. it just says great fish, so we don't even know, you know, is this a, a leviathan or what is this thing here? We don't know. Is this extinct? Also, the fact that all these people were saved. I mean, who has that kind of ministry? Who, who has that kind of, even Jesus, people hated him and didn't believe. And here's this prophet Jonah showing up and, and then they try to say Nineveh wasn't this big. Uh, if there's 120,000 adults, or, or maybe adults and children, it wasn't this big. These animals, what's that all about? That has to be allegory. Well, I think as believers, we just take it as history because that's what it brings itself to us as. God is saying, this happened. There was a real prophet named Jonah. He was the actual prophet of God. And he did these things. And God did these things. And it really happened. And Jesus had no problem with that because what did Jesus say? He referenced Jonah multiple times, right? So if Jesus says it's history, then I'm good with whatever he says. I'm going with number one. Should be A. My numbering wasn't uh, accurate on these slides. Is it A on your handout? It should be A. My slide person wasn't accurate. Number two, what's the purpose of the book? Well, all of these are in the book. What's the main purpose? Is it about repentance? 
That's there, isn't it? Nineveh repents. But that's only one chapter. That's only chapter three. So is it about, and this is real popular with commentaries, and even some pastors, they'll say, look, it was all about the Jews' attitude towards Gentiles. And they'll sort of use it, some even go so far to use it as a social justice book. You know, don't be racist. Look at Jonah. Look how racist he was. He didn't care about anybody else but his people, his kind. Well, he didn't like the Assyrians, but nobody liked the Assyrians because they're the world power. So is that racism? No, it's probably more just uh, he hated them because they were killing and taking away his people and they were going to destroy it eventually. So he did have some wrong attitudes. It would be sort of like today, Christians who hate Muslims and don't even want to preach the gospel to them because there's some Muslims out there that do uh, terrorist um, activities. Okay, well, we, we, don't, we don't like the activities. We don't like the death that they bring, but we still ought to proclaim the gospel. So there was some bad attitudes there with, with Jonah. But I think it's number three, or C on your handout, the great compassion and sovereignty of God. That's the overarching theme. You don't just look at one chapter to pick a theme. What's the whole thing from beginning to end? The compassion and sovereignty of God. It's about God. It teaches us about who God is. Yeah, Jonah's a bad example, and we learn lessons from him, but it's mainly about who God is. Okay, I think you'll know what I would choose on this one, but the character of Jonah. Was he an unfaithful prophet? So sometimes people will preach and say, look, Jonah's a false prophet. He doesn't do what God says. He runs from God. Even when he's forced to do it, he still complains about it. Don't be an unfaithful servant of God is kind of what they would preach. Or, I'm sorry, A would be, that he was a prophet, but very unfaithful. I was just talking about, too, a false prophet. So he's a false prophet of the king that we read about in Second Kings, as some people would say. Others, he's just very nationalistic. He's not into social justice. He's, he's racist. He's nationalistic. You know, our, our current president, people say, oh, he's too nationalistic. He just cares about America. He doesn't care about other countries. Oh, Jonah just cares about the Jews, and he doesn't care about any of the other countries. No, I think... He's just unfaithful for a time. So I'm going with A. He's unfaithful for a time. Second Kings, he seems to be very faithful. He seems to proclaim the truth to the king. He's certainly not a false prophet of Jeroboam. God doesn't send false prophets to, to Nineveh and then cause that many people to be saved. He's unfaithful, meaning he's like the Christian who runs into sin and runs from God. But then God brings them back and they're restored. He's backslidden. He's unfaithful. So A. All right, Micah. The last one is Micah, the prophet Micah. Hopefully you're trying to read some of these during the week before class. These are pretty quick to read. should be able to keep up. Micah has a, a neat name. Who is like the Lord? So it's close to, to Michael. Micah, who is like the Lord? Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh, we could say. He writes in the 8th and 7th century. And he writes during Hezekiah's reign. So we're moving forward in time here. This is B.C., so the numbers get smaller in B.C. And uh, Jeremiah mentions him. Jeremiah 26.18. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? 
Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. And then Jeremiah says, but we are committing a great evil against ourselves. So this prophet Micah came and Hezekiah listened to him. Hezekiah repented. Hezekiah listened. And Jeremiah saying, why don't we do like they did then? Why don't we repent and listen to the prophet? The prophecy that Jeremiah is proclaiming. So we're moving forward in time. Hezekiah ruled for quite a long time. So we don't know when this book was written, uh, the book of Micah, if it was in the 8th or 7th century, because Hezekiah overlaps in both of those. But the theme here is justice of God versus the social injustice of Judah. Some people look at Micah and say, oh, this is all about social justice. No, look at the comparison. The people are being unjust and God is just. It's not about the people who are just and the people who are not just. It's about God who is just and the whole nation, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is not just at all. They're taking from people. They're hurting people. They're following their sinful lusts and desires. So the purpose here, why is it in our Bibles? That's the purpose. It's to tell us, to teach us that righteous Yahweh would judge his unrighteous people. You don't get away with sin just because you're claiming to be God's people. But the coming ruler would fulfill Yahweh's promise to David and Abraham. So remember, every book of the minor prophets is pointing to the future. Jonah's probably the only one that doesn't talk a lot about this. Uh, we could probably find some hints in there because Jesus quotes Jonah's story uh, as a sign. But most of them are talking about the coming day of the Lord, the tribulation, the destruction, God's wrath. And in that, they're pointing to a future king, a future ruler. So three sections here. Micah can be broken up into three sections. The first three chapters here are about retribution. So the word of the Lord, and this is Micah 1.1. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth and the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So it really touches on both the north and the south, but more emphasis is on uh, Jerusalem here. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down, he will tread on the high places of the earth. The high places are where they worship false gods. He's going to come and he's going to destroy them. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So both the north, Samaria, and the south, Judah, Jerusalem, are worshiping false gods. For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins, that's the northern kingdom, in an open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley. And will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. All of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings. And to the earnings of a harlot they will return. So what's the, the first problem is they worship false gods. That's the first problem. And they're going to pay the penalty for that. 
How that's been worked out in their life, though, is that they're mistreating people. They don't follow God's law. You don't, you don't worship God, you don't follow His law. You worship false gods, you follow your own lusts and your own laws. And so because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. At Beth Leafra, roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shepherd. So he just he goes on here talking about that. Chapter two gets more into the sins that they're committing themselves outside of just idolatry. He's talking about how they continue to sin. You see, if you don't follow the true God, you're just going to fall into sin. So first he starts off with sexual immorality. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them, so they take property from others. Houses, they take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. You're going to be destroyed. Both nations will be destroyed. Even Jerusalem, the holy city, will be destroyed. You worship false gods. You're mistreating your own people. Verse 6, do not speak. Do not speak out. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? So people are saying, God's not very patient. God's not very kind. And God says, look, if you do what I say, do I not bless you? Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by. You're taking people's clothes. You're stealing everything. Everything. The women of my people you evict. The widows. They have nothing left, and you kick them out of their homes and take their property. Each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. So the rulers of the, of the city and the country are denounced in chapter 3. It's not just the people, but the rulers are allowing this to happen. So that's 1 through 3, what God's going to do. But as we see in all prophets, there's judgment and there's what? Restoration. God is going to restore. He's the only one who can do it. He doesn't say, look, you people, start a new program. Get this country in shape. You know, start a welfare system, get social services going. God says, no, I'm going to do it because it can't happen any other way. I'm going to fix this problem. You're supposed to act justly. And if you had, I wouldn't be judging you. But since you have, that's all in God's plan, of course, in the background, God's sovereignty. But since you have, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore it. So chapter four, it will come about in the last days. When's this going to happen? The last days. Well, you should automatically be thinking in times. You should be thinking when Christ returns, certainly all things will be made right. Let's read on. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, 
even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. So this is clearly talking about when the Lord returns, when Christ comes back, because all the nations are worshiping God. They're streaming up to the mountain. They're going up to worship God, and God will teach them because they are his people. And there's even some physical changes, some topographical changes. The mountain is going to be the chief mountain. It's going to be raised up. It's going to be higher. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. So you remember at the end of Daniel, there's those 45 days. We're wondering what's happening then. At the very end of the book of Daniel, he gives two numbers. And he says, blessed are the people who attain to these. And there's a 45-day gap between the end of the tribulation and the, the kingdom being set up with the Messiah. What's happening in that 45 days? Well, it could be that the earth is changing. And we have this, this high mountain. And in Ezekiel, it says there's a temple there. And the streams of water are flowing out from it. Uh, the same in Revelation. So there's going to be a restoration. How is this restoration going to come about? Chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops, They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah being another name for for Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. For from you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time When she was in labor, has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Verse 2, quoted where? Micah 5, 2, quoted where? Don't look at your cross-reference. you got to know this. This is the prophecy that tells where the Messiah is going to be born. Who comes asking where the Messiah is going to be born? The Magi. The Magi show up in Jerusalem. Hey, we're here to see the king. Herod Herod the Great is very concerned about that. He's sort of taken over. He's not Jewish, but he's taken over because of the Romans, and he's allowed to rule, and he's ruling over Israel, the territory uh, for the Romans. And he hears about this, and so he says, we've got to kill this person. If there is a king being born, we've got to kill him. But where is he going to be born? We don't know. Even the Magi don't know. So he sends the scribes to look through the Old Testament. And where do they land? They land on this verse. As for you, Bethlehem, you're so little. You're not even important among the clans of Judah. But from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. There it is, Bethlehem. King tells the Magi, they go. And, of course, he comes later trying to kill all the children, all the boys that are two years old and younger. So it's much later after the Magi. But this is the verse quoted in Matthew. Is it Matthew? What was the exact verse? Luke 2.4. Luke 2.4. I think it's in Matthew too. Matthew 2, 6. So here is the verse, because it's speaking. Micah saying, look, there's a king coming. God's going to bring a restoration. He's going to do it through his king. And that king will be born in Bethlehem. Isn't it great how the Bible connects together? 
And then uh, 6 and 7 is all about the need for repentance. They need to repent. And so 6, 8 is a key passage here. We'll look at that one. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So repent, turn from your ways, and do what God says. Live a holy life. Do rightly, justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And so we look now at the three key passages, swords in the plowshares in 4-2, the Messiah passage in 5-2, and 6-8. God requires us to do what he says. So 5-2, and that's a Christmas verse. You guys, you got to remember that. Magi come, the scribes look at the Old Testament, they find the exact place the Messiah will be born. Commentaries, there's Feinberg again. If you want to go in more depth, you can pick up the New American Commentary. I think it's the best overall set on the Old Testament. I've mentioned it quite a bit. These guys cover four books, so you get four commentaries in one. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. I can't speak for all of those books and how they do, but for the book of Micah, if you wanted to go in depth, let's say we were teaching a Bible study here on Micah, then that's a good commentary to have. All right, who is the judge of Israel in 5.1? The judge of Israel in 5.1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem. So who is this? Is this the Messiah? Is this king of David's line in the past? Or is this Zedekiah, the last king? And so this is a hard one. We don't know for certain. Let's look real quick at some of these New Testament for the Messiah. That's where I would lean. Uh, Matthew 27 and 30, Autumn. Frank, Mark 15, 19. And Owen, John 19, 3. So this is speaking of people attacking Israel. Whoever this judge is, they're going to hit him. They're going to smite him. They're going to kill him. So that could fit with the Messiah. All right, Matthew. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. So Romans, they're from the nations. They're troops. That's in this verse. They hit him with a rod. The rod is mentioned here. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Frank. They kept beating his head with a reed until he was kneeling and bowing before him. All right. And then uh, John. So it could be the Messiah. That's, that's where I would lean because verse 2 is a connection. Now, maybe he's changing subjects with that but at the beginning of verse 2, or he's jumping forward in time. But I think they're so closely connected in my mind that we're looking probably at the Messiah as the judge of Israel. And we know that's the case. It could be the last king, Zedekiah. He is basically beaten by the Babylonians and, and taken. But I'm going with A. Now, this one is also hard because it involves interpretation. It involves translation of the Hebrew text. So in 5.2, it says, this is an amazing verse, by the way. It says, from you, one will go forth. His goings forth are from long ago. So he's going to be born, but his going forth are from long ago. How does that work? And how do we even translate it? Literally in Hebrew, his origins are old. So how do we understand that? His origins are old. Well, it could be translated, whose goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. That's kind of how the NASB takes it here. That is exactly how the NASB takes it. Or you could translate it, whose origins are from of old, from days of old. 
I think B is a little more literal. It's a little more to the original text. Neither one is heretical. They're talking here that God's word is saying the origin, where he comes from, not his birth, not his creation. But his coming is from a long time ago. So A works. I think A is a little more translation. B is probably a better in my mind uh, from the Hebrew. This is an eternal ruler. That's the only way it works, right? He's going to be born in the future, but he comes from long ago. How does that work? He's God. He's the son of God. He's the one that the other passages in the Old Testament talk about that's coming. The one in Daniel who comes up to the ancient of days and receives the kingdom. The one that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw like a son of the gods in there in the fiery furnace. So his origins are from old, from days of old. He comes from in the past and he's going to come to the earth and actually live a life as a king. So B, but you're not heretical if you choose A. That's what the NASB says. All right, any last second questions? I've got them all memorized. All three of these books, they're short, right? You go home and memorize Obadiah today. Right, Hector? You got it memorized? Memorize it in Hebrew. Okay, next week, three more. And then we'll have one final class two weeks from now covering the last three. And then we're done with the Old Testament survey. So it's been a fun time. Uh, We'll keep on going. We've got some really important things to talk about in Zechariah. Zechariah is a very messianic book that talks about the end times as well. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for these prophets. Help us to learn the lesson that Israel was stubborn to learn. Let us repent. Let us follow your word. As Christians, we ought to do what you tell us to do. And if we don't, you're going to discipline us. You've done that with Israel, and you continue to do that with us. Help us to not undergo that discipline, but instead to obey you from the start. We pray that we would learn the lesson from the Old Testament that you have for us. In the name of Christ, amen.